It's time for your weekly trip inside the ropes and behind the scenes of the Australian golf industry. Welcome to another episode of the Australian Golf Show with Tiffany Cherry and Mark Allen. Welcome to the show. I hope it's been a great golfing week for you and Marco and Tiff Cherry joining you. Marco, it wasn't a great golfing week for Jason Day. You could probably uh, say, although there were certainly some good signs. It started off as being the biggest story in Australian golf after two rounds at the Wells Fargo. It was enormous what he did. To be 10 under par on a rain-soaked golf course on a tournament that he's won before. He's won, he won this one in 2018. I think, I yep. think it was the last tournament he's yep, actually yep. won. Well, his last win was then. For him to get the 10 under par and be leading by three, that is a breakthrough week. I mean, the, honestly, Jason Day, a uh, former world number one, a major champion. He's contended at the Masters not once, twice, probably three times. He's been a real chance. And he was, you know, for a long time flying the flag for Australian mm-hmm. golf. It was him and Adam Scott. Yep. And he has been wrestling with the way that he plays the game. Um, so much so that I think after two rounds he was saying, I'm finally playing golf again instead of playing golf swing, which is what happens to a lot of players. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of players get to the tour and it's not until you see these guys play whether you understand whether your game is capable of keeping up with them. Jason's never had this issue. You know, he won world championships as a 16-year-old. You know, he flew from Queensland straight to California and wins the world junior championship. I mean, just an enormous amount of confidence this kid must have had in his game. So for a lot of us, we've been scratching our heads. What are you doing? Why are you messing around so much? You know, your game from tee to green is amazing. I always thought he'd probably hit the ball too hard in pressure situations. He used to brag about hitting the ball really hard in these pressure situations, but I've never seen it work before. So so what do you think happened? Uh, I think I think it was a, I think it was a, a combination. I, I reckon first time having a three shot lead at the halfway mark for a long time, and then he cops the worst day that we've seen. Uh, you know, I think the records say that it's the worst uh, average scoring round since the US Open two years previous. Now, US Open's two years previous, it's a different ball game from a regular tour event. So I'm going to say it's the worst day we've seen on that PGA Tour where they played all the way through for a long, long time. So I think it was a combination of that. And just a bad start. Well, you know, the, he, com- the commentator has said that Jason Day has forgotten how to play. That's what the commentator said, did they? I don't think you can forget the play and lead by three after two rounds. Uh, who's the commentator? Let's, have a, let's, let's get him on the program. I'll debate that any time you like. I think he's forgotten how to win. I think that's probably what he should have said. Um, you know, you, you get off to just a good start. If you just hit a couple of good shots in a pressure situation in this game, and whether that's a, a great drive off the first or a beautiful wedge early or you know a tight bunker yep. shot and you just get it right, those things give you confidence and then the magic happens. I think if Jason Day got off to a good start, uh, he might be holding the trophy now. You know, he might have taken another one home, but he just didn't uh, and it just... He, he just imploded. Well, so many of us regular golfers don't even get that. I mean, we yeah. occasionally get that great shot. Yeah. Have you been in a situation yeah. like Jason, not over in the PGA, but in your game yeah. where you imploded? Oh, completely. Uh, what was I, it worse? Well, it was the New Zealand Open, and I shot 64 in the first round at, at Pera Pera Umu, and it was a course record. Um, and then the next day I was playing in the afternoon, it was the worst ever day, and I shot 69. And the 69, I, I'm telling you, Tiff, that was a better score than the 64. Yep. Yep. And I was leading by four shots. So I was going to win this event. You know, I'm feeling good. I've changed my swing. Things are going well. I'm putting good. My caddy's there. All the signs are right that I'm going to be the New Zealand Open champion. So the private jet didn't fly all your friends over? No, no, that didn't happen. Anyway, 
uh, I was playing with Michael Campbell, and Michael Campbell had a long list of victories, a long list of victories at that stage. He hadn't won the US Open, but had a long list of victories. He hit off first. And the guy on the first tee wasn't a golfer. The guy on the first tee who was introducing us was from TV land. <laughs> you so, say that. So what's him. happened? Yeah, well, so, so what has happened is he's got Michael Campbell up, and he's gone through this enormous list, Michael Campbell, with rounds of 68, 69. Um, Rips it down the middle. So that's my turn. So I get up there. Ladies and gentlemen from Victoria, with rounds of 64 and 69. He's never led at the halfway mark before in his life. <laughs> Let's see if he can hold it together from Victoria Mark Allen. What's wrong with that introduction? That is the worst possible introduction. I've looked over at Michael Campbell. Michael Campbell had his hands <laughs> in his face. I wanted, to, I wanted to throw my three. I had my three wood. I wanted to go and donk him on the head with my three wood. Anyway, I hit this Kiwi, popcorn though. rotten shot out to the right. Shot five over seventy six, and that was the end of my. Tell week you what, the commentator had a bit of money on Michael Campbell. I'd Let's say. see if he can hold it together. Come on, not good enough. Now, anything else that you wanted to tee off? Uh, no, no, no. That's, that'll do me. What I'm really keen to do is, is to talk to Nick Dasty, who is the director of tournaments in this country. And my goodness, what, a, what an amazing performance just to get a schedule thrown together and keep it going. Absolutely. Well, as we uh, wrap up the season that was, it's great to welcome Nick. Um, fantastic to have you on the show. And as, uh, as Marco just said, to come off the back of COVID and to run a tournament like you did. But from my perspective, to continually promote the rising stars of Australian golf and for these names to really now be circulating in the mainstream conversation, I want to know what was the highlight for you? What, what, what was the part that you absolutely loved? Uh, firstly, Tiff, Marco, thanks for having me on. It's good to, good to come on um, and talk about what was yeah a great season. Um, there's a lot of highlights. Um, mm. I think, um, you know, to, to get 14 events away when we didn't, didn't get going until December – Played two just uh, just prior to Christmas down here in in Victoria, and I think a lot of people forget where we still were even in December, and there was still interstate um, border mm. restrictions. Um, you know, we got a couple of events away, knowing that a number of players couldn't come come over. Um, but I think the proudest thing and moment for for all of the PGA team was getting the Australian PGA Championship away. You know, to to make that bold decision mm-hmm. to still press ahead. You know, we were in Queensland in Brisbane uh, in January. We pushed it back from December. There were still border restrictions getting into Queensland. You had players dropping like flies. Yeah, we had a Staff. few. We lost a few early in the week um, and a couple of a couple of big, big players as well. Um, staff issues. Um, but the team did an amazing job. I was one of the staff that didn't manage to get up there in the end. Um, my son... Um, Got COVID the day before I was meant to fly up. So, yeah, was stuck here in Melbourne. Um, but the team team did an amazing job getting that event away. The board and um, let, and our CEO, obviously, through Gavin and, and all the senior management team to make that decision to, to press ahead, I think, was a, was a great thing to do. Talk us through the rain. You know, what we saw in New South Wales and Queensland this summer, uh, oh, you know, I've never seen anything like mm. it, just, you know, from a long way away looking in. What was it like putting tournament to tournament together uh, with that in the background? Yeah, it was an incredible three-week stretch up there. And I think, you know, there are far more important things going on than golf tournaments uh, up there and, and a lot of people losing their homes and, and things like that. Um, but 
you know, we're in the business of trying to run golf tournaments and, and give the give the players um, an opportunity to get out and play. And, and our team, again, did a, an amazing job along with the, the host venues and, and all the supers and uh, core staff at, at each of those venues and, and just being able to get out and, and play golf um, was, was incredible at, at a couple of those venues in particular. Um, so, yeah, a, a tough three weeks. I don't think I can remember, Marco, and you've been around Australian golf for a long time, but playing more than sort of one event in a season that was, was shortened. But to play three Never weeks in a row of 54 holes was, was incredible. Never seen it. What Never did, seen it before. What, uh, what did you learn from the season that you'll, you'll bring ahead to next year? Um, I think just, you know, through, through all the adversity and that we've, we've got a team um, and we've got a bunch of players that, you know, roll with the punches as well. Um, so we sort of forget about at, at, to a certain degree that what the players are going through, you know, the uncertainty they had on whether we were going to be playing tournaments, um, what they were going to look like, whether they were going to be able to travel to those tournaments. Um, it seems a long time ago now, but it was only, you know, it was only two months ago that the borders opened up in WA as an example. So um, the players have been through a lot. Um, hopefully we've got some, some clear sky ahead. Um, we're looking like having a fantastic 2022-23 season. Australian Open will be back. The New Zealand Open will be back. New Zealand PGA. So, you know, we're we're really pressing ahead and, and looking forward to an uninterrupted season and something that will allow these players to get out and show how good they are because, you know, we've got some unbelievable talent out there. From a personal view and obviously representing the views of, of many women and men as well, but... Um the TPS, which was its second year in running, but we had obviously the PGA Championships with the men and women and the, and the WPGA Championships running concurrently. I saw that as a, just such a huge success that we were able to reinforce th- those actions and those steps that were taken to continue to drive equality through the sport. Um, I just wanted to get your views on that and, and, and the views, I suppose, or the feedback from the PGA in particular. Yeah, look, the the WebEx Player Series um, went from strength to strength this year, and and having Hannah become the first female to uh, to win a mixed gender event on a major tour was was a great highlight. Um, the playoff a couple of weeks later with uh, Aaron Pike and Mamoka Kabori, um, another first. So that that was a great positive. Um, the you know this year coming up in the twenty two twenty three season, we'll probably have about nine weeks where we'll have combined men and women's events of mm. some description. And Australian golf certainly leading the way with that. The recent announcement around the Australian Open back on the sand belt, I thought was huge anyway. But um, you know to be running those events concurrently, so it's a it's a you know it's a big summer ahead. Um, we're leading the way on that front, um, and and it does give our players the opportunity to shine. We're back on TV a lot more often than what we have been, which has been a real positive as well. You know, you should be able to turn on your TV throughout summer, turn on mm. Foxtel, uh, Fox Sports, and and bang, there's there's a golf on on the weekend, which is great, and, yeah. and it gives these young players a chance to showcase how good they are. Because if you don't see them, you don't realise. That is right. It's a, it's a brilliant point. So I reckon there are three things that make you feel like you're a professional golfer: one, a decent schedule; two, decent money. And, and three, the TV. Uh, and bang, bang, bang. This year, uh, there's been nothing like it, uh, you know, from what I've seen. You know, when, when you come out and, and, and you turn professional, you know, unfortunately, we've had years, you know, what, 10 years ago where there wasn't too much to play. How hard was it to get it up and going and, and, and get everybody pointed in the right direction, get the TV on board, the whole lot? How, how, how difficult has that been? 
Yeah, it has. It has been difficult, but it's um, you know it's been a it's been a slow process as well. You know, we're starting to see some results this year, and and we'll see even better results next year as we return to normal with a couple of those major events coming back. But but this is a a process that really started sort of two and a half three years ago, um, where we sat down and and really looked at where things were at pre COVID. Um, looked at where the schedule was at and it wasn't where we wanted it to be. There's, there's no hiding from that. Um, there was a lot of work needing to happen. So we had to, we had to get creative. We had to look at what we could do and, mm. and get out there and, and look, we've, we've had some successes, but we are nowhere near where we still want to get to. And, and that'll happen over the next two to three years. So next season, is there anything that you can share with us that you can reveal that uh, is going to be different. That's that's an add-on. That's uh, you know that you're excited about. That's changing the season. Um, yeah, well, we'll certainly grow again in in tournaments. So uh, pre pre COVID, we were only 13 PGA Tour of Australasia events in that 2019 season. I think we'll be 18 to 19 this year. And and like I said, the return of the big ones makes makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Um, the the DP World Tour being back down, and with the the opportunities that come through that with the Australian PGA Championship at $2 million, the highest it's ever been, the Australian Open with DP World Tour sanctioning, uh, the opportunities for the players um, at, at what next season will be all about. And, you know, and that's been a big part of this season as well. And, and we witnessed that on the weekend at the NTPGA when mm. there was a number of mini tournaments within the tournament going on to, to get those spots to be able to get to the tour schools. Congratulations on all those yeah. pathways. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. brilliant. Uh, I know we're talking to Austin Batista coming up very, very soon. I know we're going to ask him about you know what he's going to do with his ninth place finish as well on, on the order of merit. I'm sure he's going to be super excited. But from all the professionals watching on, I reckon that's been the biggest tick, you know, just to help these kids – uh, all the way down here in the in the South Pacific, trying to get the headquarters in the Northern Hemisphere. So, congratulations! Thank you. And and yeah, look, you know, the best thing about our tour this year with the fourteen events, there was nine first time winners, um, with an average age of twenty four out of those first time winners, including from Harrison Crow as an amateur as a twenty year old winning. Um, you know, Blake Windred, Jack Thompson, Jed Morgan. Yeah. Um, all first-time winners, Austin, who won on the weekend. Um, and they're all so featuring in the top 10. Yeah, top 10, top 20. They're going to get to second stages of Q schools, final stages of Q schools so or, or DP World Tour cards. So they're going to be they're going to be flying the flag for Australia and, and New Zealand uh, on the World Tours. Well done. Good man. Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to see what happens coming up over the coming months. Thank you so much, Nick. All the best and uh, back to work. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. All right, coming up next, we have our cherry picked. Welcome back to the show. It's with great pleasure we welcome our cherry pick guest for the week. He's a young man who's had wind in his sails for the last couple of weeks on the PGA Tour of Australasia with a runner-up and a win at the Northern Territory PGA Championships. Welcome to uh, 25-year-old Austin Batista. Fantastic to have you on on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited to be here. Hey, what what's clicked in the last couple of weeks, Austin? For you, obviously, with the runner up in Kalgoorlie and then a and then a win last weekend. Um, I would say mainly just. Uh, I mean, as uh, Gowie mentioned in the Kalgoorlie event, he said that it's confidence based playing. So he referred to me as that quite a few times, and uh, it's you know confidence breeds confidence. So making putts, hitting good shots, and then. Time after time, you just have more opportunities because you know you can do it. So I think that's kind of uh, 
bled into a really good result last week. So you got the trophy, you got the first place check, you also got a tournament record, equal record, 20 under par. Um, I've never even been close to 20 under par, Austin. What's it like? I mean, when you really feel like, you know, things are going your way, not many bogeys, stacks of birdies, what's that feeling like for people who are listening in who don't have a clue, like me? <laughs> um, i tell you what, it feels, it's, it's, I guess it probably in relation to other players, it feels actually quite similar to when they're playing really good. I mean, it's just, this, it is a little bit of a different level. Obviously it's 20 under par, but like if let's say, you know, you're playing your Wednesday comp and you're going for 44 points or 42 points or whatever, you just feel like everything's clicking and it's all working. Um, for me, that's probably how I could best relate it to a, a weekend or a weekday uh, handicapper. Hey, Austin, that's a pretty cool trophy that they handed you. Uh, can you describe for our listeners what it looks like and did you have to wrestle it yourself? Uh, it, it's an absolute – no, I didn't have to – I mean, I did have to carry it. It's bloody 50 kilos or somewhat like that, but it was so – it's so heavy and it's it's, a, it's the coolest trophy I've ever won and uh, it got referred to on social media uh, all over the world as the coolest trophy in golf. So it's definitely a, it's a cool one to have. Describe it for our listeners. It's a uh, it's a crocodile head that is a real crocodile head, and it's uh, munching on a a large golf ball, <laughs> and uh, it's yeah, it's absolutely enormous. It's pretty cool. Only <laughs> uh, in Darwin, that sort of stuff, just magnificent. Hey, Austin, yeah. you've jumped into the top ten on the order of merit, uh, and that's where you're going to finish. You're finishing ninth. And one of the great things that that the Australian PGA and Golf Australia have organised are some really good pathways now. You're going to get to the second stage of the secondary tour in America. Um, I, uh, I mean, if I was you, when do I leave? Uh, what, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, I'm stoked with that. Uh, that's um, It's a hard stage to get to second stage. And second stage is referred to, I think, by a lot as one of the hardest weeks in uh, golf in the year. Because if you do get through second stage, that's when you are guaranteed some sort of status in Corn Fer- on the Corn Ferry Tour. Um I will. I'm, well, I'm leaving tonight to the UK. Uh, I'm playing a few events over there, but I'll probably be in uh, in the US around July. Uh, just trying to get as prepared as I can for that one. It's a, definitely a, a pretty cool achievement. One advantage you have up your sleeve, Austin, quite clearly through the uh, the sound of your accent, is that you won't have to assimilate yourself to the, to the US. And obviously, you've had experience there before. But tell us about your background. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I did get stuck with the uh, the Yankee accent. Unfortunately, I've always felt like I've been in limbo throughout my life because I don't, I've never really had a home. Like I am Australian. I claim to be Australian. I was born here in Sydney, but then every time I come home, they're like, go, go back to the US, mate. And I'm like, oh, okay, go over there. And if I have an Aussie twang over there, they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, this is uh, stuck in the middle. But yeah, my dad's American and mom's Aussie. So um, throughout my life, I've gone back and forth between Sydney and San Francisco and, uh, it's been it's been actually really really helpful because I've been able to play not just one type of golf course. You know, I've been able to have a bit of advantage of both. So yeah. And was it your dad who introduced you to the game, and and, and how did you how did you come to pick up a club? Um, no, I actually I uh, I played uh, soccer a lot when I was younger, and uh, that was a sport that I really wanted to play. And um, he played he played tennis was his sport, and I like tennis as well. But uh, how I got introduced to it is I um, I remember when I was younger I watched uh, it was I was just walking through the garage and on TV was the Masters tournament it was 2005 and just so happened to be was that shot that Tiger hit on 16 and 
some reason I was just drawn to the TV and I watched it and it was crackly black and white, could barely make it out. But I remember watching that shot and I was like, wow, that is the coolest thing I have ever seen. And uh, I asked my dad to um, bring me to the golf course uh, shortly after. Hey, Austin, I've wrestled with uh, wanting to ask this question or not, but I'm going to anyway. Look, One of my pet hates is uh, the line drawn on the golf ball. Now, I get it. You know, if, if I was back when I was a pro, I would have taken every advantage I possibly could. Do you think the game would be better, i.e. faster, if that was banned? Because I, I know you're, you seem to do it a bit. And, and if you're not happy with it, you'll back off and, and make sure everything's absolutely perfect. And like, and like I said before, I get it. You know, you want to get every advantage you possibly can. Would the game be better without the line on the ball? Uh, I guess it's kind of a, like a general kind of question because like there's a lot of things that could be banned to make golf better for sure. Um, speed of play would be pretty good if everyone just ran to the golf ball. That'd be pretty interesting as well. If everyone had to run five days in under 25 minutes would be good. But the line isn't, I think, the first thing that would make golf better. But, I mean, I honestly, when I was younger, I never used the line. And mm. only since I came back to golf two years ago is when I put the line back in. Um, I just find it is nice to look at something rather than because when you're looking down at the golf ball, you're not looking at the hole. So it's one of the only sports where you're not looking at where you're aimed mm. when you're hitting the shot. When you're playing mm. football, soccer, tennis, you're looking at where you're going and then you're hitting it that way. But golf, you're like, you've got a blind eye and then you're trying to look at this thing. It's like, it'd be kind of strange to not know where you're aimed. Yeah. Uh, and where is it good and where is it bad? I mean, I imagine on the short parts, it's really good. And maybe on the long parts when you get over it, because of the distance of the putt, you know, a one tiny quarter of a you know degree off, and that ends up being quite a long way over an 80-footer. Do you use it on every yeah. single putt? No, not every single putt. Uh, 20 to 25 feet is probably the longest that I'm using it. Anything over, I'm usually uh, just dropping it down and trying to focus on speed. But, yeah, inside 10 feet, I think it is, uh, it's a mm. great help. It's a... Uh, it, it just really, I mean, if you have a really good stroke and you can, you know, get that line going end over end, it helps a lot because mm. it's confidence based. You're like, man, I hit a good roll there. Whatever, it, it didn't go in. That was just a misread or what. But it's, uh, it's, it's bad if you have a bad stroke because you put that line down and yeah. it's going like a 360. You're like, damn, I suck at putt. <laughs> <laughs> hey, last one. Have you ever got over a putt in competition? You've gone down, you've adjusted it a couple of times, you've got back up, and you can, it just feels wrong again and you've just gone ahead and, and kind of maybe aimed slightly differently to that line or do you just trust the line? No, I have done that and I, it's a terrible feeling when you're stepping over it and um, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable because like you put the line down, it's wrong, you do it again, you look down. And you're like, is it me or is it because sometimes you step over a putt and you might feel like you're sitting back a bit just because of the slope of the green. But the line has it going left to right. And you're like, God, this is such a weird putt. And and sometimes in that case, I will just forget the line and put the ball down and just feel it. Mm. You mentioned uh, just uh, just before that you stood, you uh, walked away from the game. You, You took a little bit of a break. I think it was a couple of years. What was the reason for that? Uh, well, I, I've been playing golf since I was really little, eight or nine years old when I started. And, um, you know, I got obsessed with it when I was young, obviously. And just uh, that's all I did. I just golfed every single day, you know, eight hours a day, nothing else. And I guess I got to an age, I was like 20, 20 years old. I just had turned 21. And I had seen, I traveled all over the world and I had seen things that I guess anyone would see when, you know, you're traveling all over the world. You know, you see a lot of, uh, you know, just hard, hard times for people living in tough countries, a lot of drug abuse, a lot of things that, you know, you'd probably want to be better in the world. And I was like, just, I was struggling with my point of view of this, how, how am I going to help 
this world? How, how am I going to do something that makes me feel like I've contributed in golf? To me, it just seemed like I was being selfish. So I wanted to um, take a step back and I did some volunteer work with the uh, Drug Free World campaign. And I went all over all over the world traveling, uh, educating people on, you know, the harmful residual effects of drug abuse uh, to teenagers, people in school, um, anyone that had been in like kind of like the tough parts of the world that, you know, don't really have the knowledge or what is it actually doing to their body. And uh, I went to some countries that had been uh, hard struck by some natural disasters and I provided aid with them, um, stuff like that. And it was definitely, I didn't touch a golf club for two years. I didn't hit a ball. I, I missed it, but I definitely felt like I didn't have to be playing. And, um, you know, I, I kept I kept somewhat close tabs on how golf was going. I was watch, I remember watching Tiger win the Masters in 2019. I hadn't touched a club for a year. And I was like, wow, that was cool. But I definitely felt like I was doing something that, for me, it just, personally, it was good. I didn't have social media at the time as well. I deleted Facebook, Instagram, everything, <laughs> um, and just focused on what I was doing. Hey, also, just quickly, uh, you'd have all that time off from golf. How long did it take you before you were shooting under par again? Uh, it, well, the first few rounds are tough. I, I had like, I couldn't stop shanking it. I was literally, <laughs> I shanked, I played, I played like four, four rounds in a week and I shanked maybe six or seven times each round. And it was just, Nice. Oh God, it was it was hard. It was painful. I was like, I was like, this is not worth that two year break. I'll tell you what. So what was it? What was it that drew you back? Uh, I remember I I felt like I just I got to a certain time of that two year mark, and I was just like, you know, I I feel like I've done because I it was two years of like twenty four seven, you know, every single day of the year, and I just felt like I've done a lot of work to help, and I felt. Personally, I just felt better. So then I was like, all right, let's go play some golf. And I was um, just excited to get back out there. Hey, and I wanted to get you finally just your thoughts on the uh, PGA Tour of Australasia on the season, um, you know, the success of it. What would, uh, how would you summarize it? Uh, just an unbelievable, you know, stretch of, I think it's four or five months. They, they did an amazing job from the Australian PGA, you know, to getting that a tier one event, a lot of attention on it, providing opportunities. This, uh, it's been unreal. I didn't expect to be here this long because uh, I was gonna, you know, play mainly in the US and then in Europe, but uh, it worked out that I was able to stay longer and be with my family. And I was just so, I was impressed that they, you know, that every single tournament, regardless of the weather, regardless of things that were stopping it from going forward, they just persevered and had an amazing tour. and. You know, it really does propel the Australian players to give them a platform to go off and do really well. And that's just exactly what's needed for Australia because we have so many skilled, talented players that yeah. just need a, you know, need a bit of a platform to go off. And I think that we'll be have, well, the number one uh, Aussie player in the world very soon. Well, congratulations to you because the platform was provided and you finished ninth on the, in the order of merit. And uh, as you said, you're off to Europe and then the US. We wish you all the very best, Austin. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Good man. And absolutely. Coming up next, we have all the news from around the traps with uh, Australian's golf media manager, Martin Blake, right after this. Well, it's always great to welcome the gazelle, uh, Martin. Well, there's a lot to talk about, but I want to talk about first a young man who, well, he's actually not that young, but he's sort of, he's been playing on the PGA Tour for a while and he's only had, I don't know, four wins or thereabouts. But That's he's, not bad, too. I know, but he's the, he is so popular. Max Homer. He is, Tiff, and uh, I wanted to ask Marco what he 
thought about him as well. He's number 29 in the world now, Max Homer, after his win in the Wells Fargo at the weekend. Uh, 31 years of age. Like, great story of, uh, you know, resilience. Like, he lost his card, for, I think, yeah. four years ago. Uh, I think he had a season on the tour where he only made two cuts in the whole year. Yeah. Um, so he's he's found a way. It, 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 golf's an interesting game like that where people can have kind of two careers or even three mm. careers, can't they? Oh, he's they, relatable. There's yeah. a lot of people can go, I can understand where Max is coming from. And he's also – he gives so much, doesn't he? He's, he's got a great uh, social media following. He's always out there talking and he's good on Twitter. the game. He's, yep. he's really good on Twitter. So, so what, what's happened, he's, he's won on Mother's Day. And the tweet that he sends out, for instance, is just to give you an idea, is that uh, – and he, his wife is heavily pregnant. So his, his tweet was, to my uh, soon-to-be newborn son – you're going to have to go a long way to outdo me this Mother's Day <laughs> in the future. Absolutely. Right? So it's, so he, it's, it's that yeah. kind of yep. um, the way he's connecting to other people that, that has made him a favourite. The, the other thing that he's doing um, is he makes the effort to do the rounds in all the American podcasts. So he's a, yeah. they love him yeah, because absolutely. he makes an effort. He gives a bit. Now, gives but, something back. There's, there's, there's a lesson. If anyone's listening. You don't as have to a, do much. As opposed to Sergio Garcia, who Holy cracked moly. it again. He's got a history of doing this. And uh, there's a rules official who upset him because he was looking for his ball. And well, he, You know I, what happened? So what, well, it went, went, in a, what, it went into a big hazard, and the rules official has started the stopwatch because you only get three minutes these days. So as far as Sergio is concerned, the rules official started the stopwatch when Sergio got in the vicinity of the rules official. Not when he got into the vicinity of, the of where the ball might be. Yeah. So to me, that if I know where the ball is, I want to get to that location and then the rules official, you're welcome to start the clock once I'm there. But if I've still got 30 seconds to get into this long stuff that I'm looking for, then wait, wait until I'm in there and then start the clock because three minutes or two and a half minutes is a big difference. It's a big difference. He was not happy with that. <laughs> I, I can't wait to leave this tour. The quote came across the uh, on-course microphones, Here, which yeah. in the current environment with Greg Norman's Saudi series and all that Where was, was it, fairly maybe. significant. Yeah. Uh, poor old Sergio. I didn't have a great day. Uh, Ken Duke on the uh, Champions Tour. Did you happen to see the putt by Ken Duke? I'm not sure whether our listeners will have all seen this. What you should do is go to YouTube and just type in Ken Duke putt and you'll see him putt from 20 feet for Birdie, Marco, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. He putted it past the hole. It's a, it, it talks about setups and green speeds. There's, yeah. a, there's a competition among green keepers and sometimes with tours to have fast greens, and it's just not yeah. ideal. So he puts it, it trickles past the flag, keeps trickling. He goes around behind the ball, waiting for it to stop so yeah. he can mark it. It almost stops. It keeps going. Then it hits a ridge, goes down, it goes how 30 metres. How many of us have had this? Yeah, You've done this? Yeah, oh, yeah. At my club, if you putt the ball off the green, you've got to buy your playing partners a bottle of red. I like that. That's not bad. That's good. That should be incorporated everywhere. He was leading the tournament at the time. <laughs> he took a triple. Uh, it is a cruel game. That was at Sugarloaf in Georgia. Marco, it reminded me of the 2002 Australian Open at yeah. Victoria, which is, uh, apart yeah. from anything else, is that one of the most embarrassing yeah. days in Australian Open history where they had to cancel play because the greens were unplayably yeah. fast. A revolt led by you, I believe. I was at ground zero. Yeah, so I was playing with uh, Bob Shearer, and we we're Late playing. Great. We we're playing with this uh, Western Australian lad. Anyway, um, Paul, I think his name. That's was him. Yeah. Well done. I'd forgotten his name. Anyway, uh, we played the first two holes, and it was a joke. 
I mean, the Greens were running at 16. There wasn't a breath of wind. And perfect day. It was a perfect day. The only tournament in history to be uh, only tournament round in history to be cancelled due to perfect conditions. Anyway, um, we got onto the, this next hole. Now, if you've never played Victoria, this next hole, uh, the green has been adjusted since to where you can have some pin placements. But where they had the pin, it was impossible. Anyway, this lad ball. Which hole was it? The third hole. So my ball, I, I, I was I, ball ball hit a, a, a chip shot. 15-foot pass, I was a really bad shot. Anyway, so I've chipped up, and I know where the, and I could see my ball go up, and it came back, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm in trouble here. And I saw a wobble. You know, when I marked the ball, my ball luckily got stuck in an old pitch mark. Beautiful. Okay, so thank you. I had a three-footer to stay even par for the first three holes, which was going okay because everyone was shooting 87s and 89s and these horrible scores. Anyway, this kid got up above, the ball kid got up above his 10-footer. He only just touched it. Like, it was a feather-light touch, and it went all the way off the green. Yeah. So What does Bob Shearer do? Well, I'm looking over at Bob, and he's just shaking his head, and, and, and Bob doesn't want to putt, and he didn't have to putt because the ball rolled miles off the green like Kenny Jukes. So he goes all the way down. He chips it up. It's just short of my marker, so a, a good chip shot, and it rolled off again. <laughs> yeah. So now this kid, now this kid, is in tears, and he also knows that he can't leave it short. So he's got to hit it past the hole because otherwise it'll roll off again. So he hits it past the hole, then he just taps it. Anyway, the, one of the great things about playing in the Australian Open is every single group gets a tour uh, a rules official. So I'm watching this rules official, and I'm watching Bob. And I looked at Bob and I said, Bob, this is unplayable. And he goes, well, I can't say what Bob said, but he, he, he said, yes, it is unplayable, Mark. In Bob's feet. In Bob's feet. That's right. Anyway, so I, I, we called the uh, official over and, and we said, this golf course, I said, did you see just what happened? He goes, yes. And I said, the course is unplayable, isn't it? He goes, yes. And we looked at each other and said, well, we're not playing. And that was it. And then all hell broke loose. Who was the tournament director? It was the late Colin Phillips, uh, AGU. Sure, he was CEO. on your. Uh, no, he yeah, wasn't on my on side. Your Christmas, uh, no, he wasn't. He wasn't list. on my side. But see, we were. It was we a were, dramatic day. It was, it was a huge, incredible day. So, so what had happened? He he came and he said, "Mark, why have you stopped?" And I said, "Because the course is unplayable." He goes, "Mark, these greens aren't one bit faster than they were this morning when we put the holes in." And I said, "Yeah, that's right for everywhere around the green, but in the three foot circle or the four foot circle around the hole, we've had a hundred players and a hundred caddies walk on. That is twice as fast as it was when you cut the holes this morning." And um, you were right. He knew <laughs> so, were right. He, he stopped the tournament there and then. Pronunciation check: Torbjorn Olsson uh, from well Denmark won the uh, British Masters on the weekend. Which there's a bit of a backstory there because uh, on a flight. Uh, to Heathrow from the States in, I think, 2019. Uh, Torbjorn uh, had some sleeping pills that he got from some dodgy place, and he also had a few drinks, and <laughs> he ended up being in For the court. record, yeah. I'm not getting sleeping pills from a dodgy no, place anytime no, no. soon, but go, continue. Uh, so he ends up in court comatose. charged with sexual assault, oh uh, various forms of assault, um, drunkenness, wow. um, and he was acquitted of the sexual assault, but uh, I believe found guilty of some of the other, you know, the lesser charges but uh, apart from anything else he's extremely embarrassed and uh, uh, he's gone through a lot and now he's come back and he's playing pretty pretty well so that that was a big moment for him Austin Batista you had on earlier one by seven the Northern Territory Mm. PGA that's been coming for a while shot 61 I think in the second round Uh, hey Phil Mickelson 
Mickelson uh, is in the field for the PGA as of this morning. We're recording this on a Tuesday. Uh, No one was quite sure. Hasn't played, I don't think, since about February. It's a story, isn't it? Uh, Supposedly on suspension. Uh, The PGA Tour of the United States don't tell you if he's on suspension. They weren't happy with some of his commentary around the Saudi series. So uh, there's a book coming out about Mickelson that – it's being done by an American journal who keeps sort of leeching out a little bit at yeah. a time. He he said that Mickelson lost forty million bucks in gambling in two, I think, four years. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I remember when he famously went to Callaway. I mean, normally you just get paid, let's say, at, in in their league, ten fifteen million dollars a year. I, I think Callaway offered him a signing bonus. <laughs> to eradicate a lot of the bill. Wow. Um, so that's the only time in history, I think, in the history of golf where there's been a sign-on bonus. A bit it's, like, you know, it's interesting. His, sports athletes uh, Phil's there. brother, Tim, uh, runs one of the college uh, programs over there, or did run it. I'm not sure whether he still does. And they were scouting Ryan Ruffles when Ryan Ruffles turned pro. And Ryan went and played with him at their invitation. Yeah. And uh, Ryan has since told the story of Mickelson saying, now what do we play? He gets on the tee and he's playing against a kid, 17-year-old kid. Oh, no. Uh, and he says, you know, what are we playing for? And uh, Ryan says, oh, I don't know, we, I don't know, 100 bucks, 50 bucks. Mm. And uh, Phil said, well, I don't get out of bed for less than five grand. Um, so they, they ended up playing. Anyway, Ryan since told this story after he – turn pro and Phil was very angry with him for telling that story but there you go I mean he's he's clearly had, had an issue mm. yeah. uh, a big issue well, he's had some issues with a lot of people but I'll, yeah. I'll say that he's been fantastic for the game I, I think yeah. he's turned around his persona in yeah. the last 10 years I mean he's had a little hiccup here obviously but he's been he's been very very good for the last, for a long long time so yes Phil's in the field for uh, Southern Hills next week along with Tiger Woods uh, Tiger's also in the field. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're playing. Well, I think Tiger will definitely play. Phil got some other issues to sort out whether they want him back playing, but you need to remember that the PGA Championship is owned by the PGA of America, not the PGA Tour. It's owned and operated by the PGA. So it's the Tour that is his real fight. Uh, the Interstate Series is on this week. The Golf Australia Interstate Series at Sorrento, just uh, on the Mornington Peninsula. First time for three years. So 20 and 21 were cancelled. Fantastic bunch of players. If you're listening now and you live in that area, just get out there to Sorrento Golf Club, which is a beautiful course. Uh, Kirsten Rudgley's playing. Harrison Crow, who won the New South Wales Open. Hayden Hopewell, who's yeah. runner-up in the WA Open's playing. Kelsey Bennett's playing. Mm. Uh, men's and women's team. Uh, I love that. Four, four players, and uh, four men, four women in teams of eight. Uh, New South Wales and WA are awesome teams. They'd be going to be very hard to beat. Uh, but Where that, is that again? That is at Sorrento Golf Club on the Peninsula. Um, it's a great format. Congratulations to Golf Australia for putting it together. It, it makes sense. It, it, they used to do it on different weeks, but this is this is just a, a far superior way to do business. And I think also uh, when it's a top four to get to you in the team, if you're a man or a woman, it just adds a little bit uh, a little bit more. Uh, it's 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 better. It's, yeah, it's more it's, of an accomplishment to get into your state side. It's quality, Marco, because if you look at Rudgley and Harrison Crow, they both won pro events yeah. already. They are little pros. Yeah. Aren't they? They're ready to go. They're, They're semi-pro, just, yeah. I think someone like Harrison, he's just waiting to play uh, You know, some big stuff like the Eisenhower mm-hmm. Trophy's coming up this year. Last thing I wanted to mention was the Order of Merit, which finished. Uh, Dick Dasty spoke about this a little bit earlier, but um, Jed Morgan, Blake Windred and Andrew Dote were the three players who got their DP world tour cards or will get their cards having mm. finished top three fantastic new thing previously i think at the top player got it mm. um 
Also, Jed Morgan, we, and we announced this in Brisbane last week, Jed Morgan got a, has got a start in the US Open next month. Mm. Uh, as well as, obviously, the... And the Open Championship at St Andrews. What, what an yeah, opportunity as part of, a part of that. And that all came, really, from his unbelievable victory by 11 shots in the Aussie PGA. But mm. fantastic for Blake Windred, who we've had on the, the program, to get that at all. I mean, there are lots of other opportunities offered through the Order of Merit. Like Aaron Pike had a good week at Palmerston last week, jumped into the top five, which gets him to the... Final stage of Corn Ferry Brilliant. Tour. Yeah, that's yeah. So Dimi Papadados finished fourth, mm. which gets him to the top. Yeah. I playing partner. Yeah. Your old mate Dimi. <laughs> so you know, lots of opportunities there. And we heard what Austin said before. Remember, Austin said that uh, getting the second stage is the hardest stage because if you actually get to the last stage, you're guaranteed some kind of status. So the two lads that you just mentioned have got all the way so to the got last some stage. Sort of guarantee. They've got some sort of guarantee in America next year. Yep. which is what you know, Nick Dasty and Golf Australia and the PGA have been fighting for for so long. So brilliant for these guys who have played well this season. Yeah, absolutely. Well done. Thank you. Good we'll, on you guys. we'll catch up with you again next week and uh, we've got your masterclass coming mm. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shoulder plane, uh, Max Homer. I'll tell you more in a tick. I'm looking forward to this one, Marco. My dad, who uh, played off single figures well into his 70s, always said, don't move your head. <laughs> Even when I was trying to drive the ball, don't move your head, don't follow the ball, just watch the ball. Now, you have some slight alternative to that. Well, can I say Mr. Cherry's done well to go on single figures for so long? Because your head's got to move just a little bit. What I love about um, some of the modern swings uh, is, is shoulder plane. I wish shoulder plane was around when I was a younger man because if you get your shoulders turning correctly, it, it, it makes the rest of the swing it makes it have a bit of sense. You're not chasing your tail. If, if you're an amateur golfer and you move your shoulders at the very start too flat, quite often the head will come up a little bit and then you've got to readjust your shoulders for them to dip and then there's an, an over-the-top. It is a full disaster. You know, I've been watching golf for a long time. It seems to me some of the best golf swings in the business. So John Rahm, Ben Hogan. Sam Sneed, Jack Nicholas in his early days, uh, Greg Norman when he kept his feet flat on the ground, uh, and probably when he was swinging the best. Uh, I'm going to say Steve Elkington as well. So some of the absolute best swings in the world. When they when their backswing starts, their head actually goes down just one inch, just a little inch. Their, their nose goes back a little bit because if you if your head doesn't turn slightly on the way back, then your shoulders just won't turn. But you watch the next time you watch some of these guys swing. Mm. In particular, watch John Rahm at the moment. It, it's really pronounced. And I'll give you one more that I left out there. Tiger Woods at his absolute best had about a half inch dip on the way back. Now, if you actually try this, what it does, we've all heard about the you know, golfers talking about using the ground forces. I don't, that doesn't make much sense to me using ground forces. I come from a bygone era. But. When you see players trying to use the ground, quite often they actually do dip. And if you can feel like you've got a one-inch dip when you start your backswing, what it does is it makes your shoulders turn the correct way. So you dip your head or your shoulders? You dip the top of your head. So you don't look down. You still want to look down through the bottom of your eyes. But when you turn back... Your head just dips just a tiny little bit. This will keep your feet on the ground for a little bit longer, but it guarantees that your shoulders will not turn flat because what I see, amateur golfers turn their shoulders too flat. And the ones who try and make their turn steep, then their hips don't work properly. So try. This This, this is a, a try before you buy sort of scenario. Get the camera out and film yourself trying to feel a one-inch dip. I almost guarantee if you're 
got flat shoulders, then you won't have flat shoulders for much longer. I just tried it, and the thing that made it work for me was pushing down through my feet into the ground. So there, there you go, go. the That's ground the forces. Yes. So you're learning the game later than me. You well might done. understand it. Good on you, Tiff. Thank you, Marco. Catch you next week.